Ah, much better. Thank you. Morning, Grace Life. Um, it's good to be back. Good to see you that are gathered here with us. And I just want to take a moment to um, do a shout out to our tech crew. We were, my wife and I have been traveling for about a month, and uh, we were out in areas where there's very little reception and very little very little of anything actually uh, in uh, New Mexico and Arizona and uh, we were able to pick up most of Matt's sermon and got we got three of the points and that's all you're supposed to have anyway in a good sermon so uh, we weren't too worried about the other two points but we got a chance to listen to that a little bit later and Matt you did a great job but it's, uh, it's good to be back, and so we want to, it, it makes it so nice when you can't be here and you're list, you can have the opportunity to listen from home or on the road or wherever you are, so thank you, Tech Booth, and it wasn't your problem that it faded out, it was just Google couldn't reach us and AT&T couldn't reach us, so I really didn't expect you all to reach us. But I do want to welcome you guys uh, that have tuned in or that are here this morning, and we have a standard Grace Life welcome that covers pretty much everybody that is here for whatever your reason is. And it goes like this, to all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, and to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. And we are so glad that you are able to hear, uh, to be here to worship with us this morning and to hear God's word spoken to us. And so we thank you for that. Normally I would read the scripture, but this is the first Sunday of the month and we have what is called My Story. And so this morning, I want to introduce Bill Roth, who will uh, come up here and tell you what his story is. So, good morning, Grace Life. Good morning, Grace Life. Um, I just want to take a few minutes to uh, praise our God and our Lord and our Savior. Um, Without, without him, none of this would be possible. And um, <clears throat> this is about God. This isn't about me. This is his testimony of his grace uh, towards me and to all of you. And um, it's going to be kind of a, a brief, uh, I'll do some big jumps, but you'll get it. Um, in my first 12 years of my life, I had the classic American life uh, growing up in South Florida um, it was, it was, it was idyllic, you know, we rode around on our bicycles throughout the neighborhoods, we would ride over to the beaches, we'd, uh, you know, just had a good time, as long as we were home by the time the streetlights came on at night, it was, it was a perfect life, you know, um, you went to a little neighborhood house, this little lady had little Bible studies, I went because Susan Stewart went. And um, she had milk and cookies and little felt boards and told us about Jesus Christ. And um, don't even know her name. Um, but that was the first time that I can recall, because, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, um, of God starting to um, 
introduce himself to me and tell me about himself. Um, at the age of 12, my parents got divorced and my life took a drastic turn. Um, I was the oldest of six and my mom ended up having to work 10, 12 hour days as a nurse. We had a nanny who took care of us most of the time. Her name was Sally. Um, and uh, because of that lack of supervision, um, we found all kinds of trouble. <laughs> and unfortunately, in the, you know, the late, in the early 70s, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of drugs and alcohol, rock and roll, um, and, uh, and that's where my life turned to. Um, I look back now and I think a lot of it was self-medicating, that's what we call it today, you know. But um, I turned into a life of, you know, partying and drugs and uh, running around, carousing, um, doing a lot of things that a person shouldn't do. Fortunately, I was never caught. Um, doesn't make it right, but um, I never got caught. I don't know how. It's, I look back in my life and all the things I've done, I'm like, how did I never get caught, Lord? Um, so, um, in that time, uh, you know, in the early 70s, that was when they started desegregation in the schools. Um, I had to go live with my dad for a few months during the separation, and we were bused into a, a, a school where I was all of a sudden a minority. Uh, I never, honestly, never been around um, African-American people in my life. Um, other than Sally, and um, and it was a very hard time. Uh, we were not accepted. Uh, ended up moving back with my mom. We had race riots in the schools. It was it was a really difficult time, um, and uh, fights all the time. And uh, but we always had our drugs. Always had something to take off the edge. Uh, as I continued to grow. Uh, I graduated in 1978 um, from high school. Uh, my mom had moved to Crystal River, and so I was the first time on my own. And that summer is just a blur. Uh, I got real, real sick. Um, uh, the day rent was due, my roommate bailed, and there I was owing rent and being sick and nothing, nothing I could do. And so my friend Gary's dad, Willie Ball, brought me home into his home. He nursed me back to health, and at the same time, he told me, he told me about God, too. And um, it was a couple weeks. I got real sick, and he just, he paid for some doctor bills, and, um, you know, my mom was a nurse, but she wasn't, I couldn't even drive to Crystal River from Fort Lauderdale. I was that sick. And um, uh, he shared the gospel with me, taught me how to cook, some good cooking, he made great gravies, <laughs> and um, as soon as I could get better, I went up to Crystal River, moving with my mom. Um, wasn't weeks, and I was back into the middle of the drug culture again. And uh, <clears throat> I was um, working at a construction site for the Crystal River nuclear plants up there, and um, I was working in the in an office setting, and uh, I had this employee named Barbara Salter. She starts telling me about Jesus. I'm like, 
wow, this is, you know, everybody's telling me about Jesus. I mean, there was a time when we went to John Easterland Park, and we'd hang around out there, and the, the Jesus people would come up and say, hey, we want to tell you about Jesus. And then you'd sit down, and when they were praying, they'd say, want to pray, we'd say, yeah, sure, you know. And when they were, while they were praying, we'd walk away and stand on the other side of the duck pond, and when they got done praying, we'd be, like, laughing at them. I mean, that's just how we grew up. Um, you know, my mom took me to a Methodist church a few times, but that was that wasn't that didn't really stick either. But um, these people, the one on one, were telling me about Jesus. And um, Barbara gave me a Bible, you know, and she inscribed on the front of it and everything. But I was still on a lot of drugs. I was still doing so much. Um, it was crazy. Uh, one night I was out in the woods over there and did some really bad drugs and I thought I was dying and I was just I prayed to God this is the first time I ever prayed to God and asked oh God just save me save me save me and um and uh went back to work the next day and told her and she was all excited you know and um but I decided I had to get away I wanted to be free of all of this and so I thought I'm going to join the Air Force join the Air Force you know went through basic and everything and it was really cool you know there's no drugs everything was clean um, got it, went to tech school there. You could do some drinking, but it was, you know, it was, wasn't too bad. But then I went to my duty station in California. Guess what's in California? More drugs than I could have ever imagined. Um, I got into, um, dealing while I was in the Air Force, uh, to support the habit. Um, I also started studying transcendental meditation, silver mind control, new age movement stuff. Um, I got into all this, uh, these crazy philosophies, um, studied out-of-body experiences um, using mushrooms and hallucinogenics. Um, I had a trip one time, though, that was really, really, really bad. And I believe God showed me or allowed me to see what true evil was. Because wherever I was in this experience, it was total fear, total fear, total darkness, total... And I just felt this evil around me. It was, it, I was, I was like, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. My friends are all freaking out. Finally, you know, you come down and everything. And I knew right then, if there's that much evil in the world, there's got to be God, you know. And I believe God used that to show me that there is a, there is a spiritual war out there. There is evil in this world. We and a lot of us don't like to talk about that, but there is. Satan's out there to kill and destroy, and I think we don't see that sometimes, but he's there. That time it was so apparent. It was like the air around me. It was so frightening. Um, I finished, got out of the air. I, I went to a church out there. It's a tent church. It was incredible. It was a big white tent. And um, got to hear the gospel some more out there. I went with some guy. I don't even remember who he was. I just knew he was going to church, and so I went about three or four times, and then went right back into the drugs again. Um, got out of the Air Force, moved back to South Florida, and went right back into that culture again, um, dealing a lot more this time. Um, and I was afraid. I was really afraid for my life. I was afraid of getting caught. Um, and I still wanted to be free, even though I kept going back to this drug culture. I wanted to be free from it. You couldn't do anything. You were you were captive. You were 
you were enslaved by it and you just couldn't get away from it as much as you wanted to. And um, one day in this apartment complex, I saw some friends that I knew. Um, I didn't really hang out with them because they were Christians. And, but, you know, I make friends with everybody if you guys haven't figured that out yet. And um, I said, where are you guys going? This was 1985. They said, we're going to see Billy Graham. I was like, oh, cool. Can I go? And they said, yeah. Um, let me back up for a second, though. I had started studying with the Jehovah Witnesses about a year earlier. Um, and it's amazing. You think, oh, Jehovah Witnesses. But, you know, God used that in my life because you know what it got me doing? It got me reading the Bible, and it got me praying. And here's the thing. God's word is true. And I honestly believe, you know, in my studies, he gave me this passage because I've been deceived many times in my life. And he, he gave me the, mess, the passage from John 8, 31 and 32. And he says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth. And truth will make you free. And, um, and, then, he, and then the other passage was, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And I knew in my heart of hearts that was God telling me that I'm the way. Just follow me. And, and yet I was still captive to these drugs. And so I tell the Jehovah Witnesses, I'm like, well, this is what I read and it means this. And like, no, but you don't understand. They always had their interpretation. It was, you know, it was never what you read it to mean. They had to pull from here and there and everywhere. It was, it was insane. Um, so I went and saw Billy Graham, and I s sat back up there in those bleachers at the ball stadium, and I just want to, I don't worship this guy, but I want to say thank God for Billy Graham, because he preached the word, and I heard it for the first time someone preached it the way I understood it, and I knew right then that I knew the truth, that, that I understood it correctly, and it wasn't some crazy method that I had to follow, it was it was just God's word. The Holy Spirit had been giving me understanding. I didn't realize at that time that's what that was. Um, so after a few weeks arguing with Joe Witnesses, I went to uh, Chuck and Julie's church. And um, I was about 30 minutes late. And that's a good thing because they were assembly God, little Pentecostal. And um, if I had seen, you know, all that kind of stuff, I probably would have made it through the worship service. Um, they had a couple there, a singing evangelist, him and his wife, and they were singing, and I was like, okay, this is cool, clapping hands, you know, and then he just stopped, and he says, I feel God's moving in my heart right now to sh share my testimony, and he starts sharing his testimony, and it's like mine, he was in the drug culture, he was hooked, he was, and he couldn't get away, and he was, and he was in bondage to it, and he wanted to be free, and and someone told him about Jesus Christ, and God delivered him from his drugs. He says, and I want to stop right now and say that God's put in my heart that there's somebody here right now that's in the same thing. And you've been praying to be free. And I'm telling you right now, God's telling me, if you come up right now, he's going to deliver you. I don't remember walking up front, guys. I just, next thing you know, I'm up at this altar, and I'm on my knees, and I'm praying, and they're praying over me. And and um, I was free. There was no withdrawals. There was no desire. It was like I never did a drug a day in my life. I don't know how God did it, but that's how God did it. 
he just took it all just immediately and and um and he set me free and um and I've been walking with God ever since you know and um you know it's it's not always been perfect there's always struggles God's always working through us to sanctify us and move make us more into the image of Christ had a lot of old demons in there still that you know God had to work out and but he did and the thing is is I look back now and I see how God was faithful and patient to call me to woo me to tell me about him it wasn't like someone had to just guys were always planting seeds we're always watering seeds to make things grow till one day it blooms and salvation comes into a person's life you don't know where that person is you're talking to but God's using you just like he used people in my life um, so any of you out here if you think you're like our our uh, greeting says you know God's if you're here and you're hearing this it's just God calling you so answer his voice answer his call let him set you free let him turn your life around and um it's all God guys and I thank you for this time Good morning, Grace Life. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, worship team, for sharing that. Let's pray, and uh, you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to camp out there today. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for the, the testimony we've already heard about your empowering grace, the presence of your Holy Spirit, your love for us, your, your pursuit of us, you overtaking us and, and liberating us, Lord. Thank you for that. I pray today's message would be clear, it would be helpful, it would be powerful, it would be biblical. Pray that we would leave here, Lord, with a, a greater understanding for the things that we most need as this passage lays out. And you would strengthen us to do that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, I'm going to read our passage together. You can help me out up in the sound booth. We'll be in Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at verses... 21 to 25, just the very last part of Romans 7. So I'll give you a second to open there. Romans chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 21. And we'll go through 25. We started this uh, the week before last. I didn't feel like I got to drill down enough, say what, everything that I wanted to say before we get into chapter 8. So we're back again today, and hopefully this will finish out this chapter. Here we go. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
I recently read the story of the worst roommate ever. Some of you guys may have heard about this. They actually made a, a Netflix kind of a true crime drama with story after story of these evil roommates that come in and upend the life of the homeowner and the, and the renter and the landlord. But one of these stories especially stood out to me. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of the worst roommate ever. Maybe you think of uh, somebody late on the rent, somebody that doesn't flush the toilet, <laughs> doesn't practice personal hygiene, making noise. Well, this roommate takes conflict to a whole new level. Here's the story. Back in 2017, Alex Miller, 31-year-old female, she posted an ad for a roommate on Craigslist. She had a spare bedroom and she needed some extra cash. And immediately she received an offer from a man who identified himself as Jed Creek, a lawyer from New York. He was moving here to take care of a sick brother and of an aging mother whose health was failing. He explained how he made a living doing litigation and tutoring students online and that all he needed was a quiet room and a fast internet connection. Well, they met and he charmed her off her feet, talked her into letting him rent the room right there on the spot. He wrote an eight hundred dollar check and she noticed looking back she noticed that there was a blank spot where the address should be and he had written in her address already and he signed the check and uh, the next day it cleared well initially she was impressed he was clean he was well dressed he was well mannered he was respectable he seemed well educated thoughtful responsible so he showed up that evening and they hit it off for exactly 11 days and then she presented his half of the utility bill, which amounted to about $140, and he refused through a text message, and he said, I would be happy to discuss this in court if you want to argue. So things just escalated from there. One evening, Alex returned home to find her six chairs missing from her table and her light bulbs missing from her light fixtures. And she gently knocked on his room and opened it up, and she saw he had taken the chairs and made a makeshift work desk and had taken her light bulbs and put them into his. And she said, what are you doing with my chairs? He said, don't be ridiculous. You don't need all six. You're the only one that lives out there. So she called her mother and explained the odd behavior of her new tenant. And her mother said, give me his phone number. And she went to work on Google. Checking this guy out. And it turns out Jed Creek was actually Jameson Bachman, a serial squatter. Now, I don't know if that's a, a phrase or terminology you've heard before. A squatter is somebody who moves into a house and they don't leave. No matter what, they're there. They're your roommate, for better or for worse, and they're not going anywhere and there's nothing legal that you can do about it. In fact, this case actually changed some squatter laws in some states. There's some laws sometimes where the weather's more severe and cold up north, and if somebody's taken up residence somewhere and they have received mail to that address with their name on it, uh, there's nothing you can do to kick them out. You have to go through a whole bunch of litigation and legality to get them out. Well, it turns out Jameson uh, Bachman was a law graduate. He knew law. He was an expert on rental law and real estate law. And he delighted to torment people. So... Her mother found out his name was actually Jameson Bachman, and he was a serial squatter, and this was not his first rodeo. He had a string of stories. He had done this too. She, in fact, contacted all of his old roommates, homeowners, and landlords, and there were like seven in the last 10 years that he had done the same thing to. 
He would take over their homes. He would manipulate his way in by giving a false identity. Identity. Then he would elicit pity with some emergency. Oh, I've been displaced by this hurricane, or my mom's dying, or I've got cancer. Some type of life crisis that would put him on the streets. He would capitalize on people's pity. He would gain their trust, and then he would set the hook. That was the same story over and over. So time and time again, Bachman's roommates were informed that because of some minor discomfort, they'd inflicted on him a dirty living room. At one point, it was a, uh, a cigarette butt in the toilet. He would throw out some fancy legalese language and say, I don't have to pay rent. You can't make me pay rent. It's against the law for you to make me do that. But free rent was not actually his end game. He, he seemed to relish the anguish of those that had taken him in. He loved a fight. He enjoyed terrifying them and watching them squirm. Nothing they could do was satisfy him or appease him because his object was not material gain. It was the sadistic pleasure of fighting them. And all the previous roommates agreed. In fact, there was a phrase. They said, what Bachman craved was a fight. And he appeared to function at all times as if he were at war. He would grow more aggressive. At, at first, it was subtle. He would get to know them, know their strengths, so that he could weaponize their strengths, know their weaknesses, so that he could exploit their weaknesses. And then he would become more sinister and more menacing. One lady, he tried to push down the stairs. Another person, he choked and sent them running out in the road, screaming for help. Somebody else he attacked with a broken coffee leg he broke off. And Alex, he actually attacked her with a knife. And she called the police on him. One roommate tearfully tried to negotiate a peaceful exit with him. She even offered to give back his full deposit and first month's rent. And she began to cry. And then he laughed. And he said, look, you've got your whole life in front of you. You're pretty. You're talented. And you've got this house. Oh, well, you don't have this house anymore. This is my house now. It's the worst roommate ever. Can you imagine that happening to you? Well, this has a tragic ending. He ended up assaulting Alex with a knife after she threw a, uh, a send-off party for him. Turns out, it turns out he messed with the wrong... He, turns out he rest, messed with the wrong homeowner and her mother. They threw a send-off party for him. Now, look, I'm, I'm not... I'm not uh, suggesting that you do this, but they found out all the things he hated, loud noises, parties, rap music, secondhand cigarette smoke. So they threw a party, and they invited 12 of their best friends, and they blasted rap music. They blew cigarette smoke under his door. She had printed out pictures of all the previous landlords that he had cheated and hung them on his bathroom mirror so that he could see them, and she would call out his real name. Hey, Jameson, we're out here. What do you think? You still want to squat? You still want to stay here? And it drove him crazy, and he came out, and he attacked her with a knife. She called the police. They arrested him. His brother bailed him out, but wouldn't let him stay with him, so he killed his brother. You can't make this stuff up. Killed his brother. He got arrested, put in jail, and he hung himself. Worst roommate ever. And why am I telling you this crazy story? I'm telling you this story because this sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7. We have a sinister roommate who's menacing who deceives us, who tricks us, who manipulates us, who weaponizes our strengths and, and, our, and our good motives and our good behavior and, and exploits our weaknesses. And then he sets the hook, and that, that roommate is sin. He's a serial squatter. Can't do anything to send him away. He's here for life. That's what the Bible calls indwelling sin. This is the Apostle Paul writing in this passage in Romans 7. He's writing as a believer He's using the present tense. I talked about that two weeks ago. If you want to go back and, and download that message, there's some people who disagree because some of the things 
that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says are, are, are so blunt, so frank, so honest, so raw, they think nobody could possibly talk like this. As a Christian, surely this was Paul before he was converted. But he doesn't say things that a non-Christian would say. He says, I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. I want to do what's right. I want to obey. I've been redeemed by Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to honor him. But I find this sinister presence, this, this evil that's here. Every time I try to do good, every time I, I, I set forth to do the things I want to do to honor him, I get pounced on, I get attacked, I get opposed, I get hindered. So this is the Apostle Paul writing, and I think one of the most powerful, blunt, honest, and raw portions in Scripture. This is very personal. He uses the personal pronoun I in Greek, ego, a me, 25 times. 25 times saying, this is what I'm dealing with. This is what's going on in my heart. He's got the worst roommate ever, and he wants to help us do something about it. So here's my outline. Long introduction. Uh, hopefully shorter sermon, okay? What does the Apostle Paul want us to walk away with? He's calling for three things, I believe, in this passage. Before we get to chapter 8 and we start talking about a much better roommate that we have that's going to empower us and liberate us and equip us to fight indwelling sin, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't talk about that yet. Here he's giving us three things that we need to take away. Number one, the need for wisdom. What do you do about this roommate who's persistent? who's deceptive, who's manipulative. We need wisdom. We need to know thy enemy. Know your enemy. Listen, guys, the greatest enemy you face is not out there. It's in here. It's right here in your bosom, right here in your heart. You carry him around with you. Second point, the need for watchfulness. Are you watching or are you understanding, man, that you're engaged in hand-to-hand combat and, and your enemy's prowling about. Yes, we have Satan as an enemy. Uh, yes, we have the world. Um, but the greatest enemy we face is, is our sin, and we need to know it. We need to be watchful. And the third is the need for warfare. We are in a fight for death. Be killing sin, John Owen said. Our sin will be what? Killing you. So those are three points. Number one, we need wisdom. And really, I wanted to drill down just into verse 21. Let me read that again. Verse 21. So I find... I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. The Apostle Paul says, I find this law. That word means I've discovered it. It's been exposed. He says, I find it. I discover it a little bit later. He says, I see it. I feel it. I even find myself becoming enslaved to it again and serving it. It's here. I know about it. Listen, it's one thing to hear about this. It's one thing to... uh, hear a lecture or hear a sermon, it's another thing to, to discover it and see it and feel it in your memories. It's, it's kind of like COVID, right? Everybody heard all the people talking about COVID and this is what's going to happen. It's going to attack your respiratory. It's going to resist that or this or that. I heard all that and then I got it and then my family got it, you know, thankfully in, in, in the rearview mirror now. But man, when you have it, it's something entirely different. Paul's speaking from personal experience. He's involving himself in this, and he's saying, I want you to have wisdom. He's writing to a church that's filled with new Christians, and he wants to help them understand what is going on here. I thought I'm a Christian, I'm delivered, I'm free, and I keep finding myself going back into those sinful, destructive, negative patterns of living and thinking and acting and talking. And Paul says, you need wisdom. You need wisdom. John Owen, I told you this last time, 
He's a Puritan who wrote an entire volume on this one verse. Don't you love the Puritans, man? He wrote an entire volume called Sin and Temptation on verse 21 in Romans 7. And this is, this is a quote. This is what he said. It is to be feared that very many have little knowledge of the main enemy that they carry about with them in their bosoms. There is a great efficacy and power in the remains of indwelling sin in believers. And its constant working is toward evil. Its constant working is toward evil. That's the only thing that sin ever wants. It wants to deceive you. It wants to manipulate you. It wants to enslave you captivate you and dominate you and then destroy you. That's what sin wants to do. I've mentioned it several times. The first mention of sin in Genesis 4, God is talking to Cain and he says, look, if you do good, well, if, if you do bad, sin is at the door and it's desirous for you. He describes it like a wild animal patiently waiting to pounce. It's a predator. You're the prey. It's looking to kill you. That's all it's after. That's its aim. That's its goal. That's its objective. That's its strategy. Sin has a strategy, and we need to know it. You know, it's hurricane season now, and we're beginning to hear on the radio, you'll, you'll hear updates like this. There's a storm forming off the southeast corner of Florida, but it's not organized. No threat, no wars. Just keep your eye on it. It's not even named yet, right? It's not organized. We, we view storms that are developing out in the ocean. As long as they're disarrayed and disorganized, they don't know what the heck they're doing. We don't care. It's just going to dump rain and turn our yard green, right? But when they begin to organize... And, get, and they have a strategy, it's almost, like, it's almost like they take on a personality. Maybe that's why they name them. It's like, uh-oh, it's organized. Here comes Betty, <laughs> you know. It's category 5, you better watch out. This is, this is going to rip up the land. It's going to like hover here and dump rain, and then it's got wind. So sin is like an organized system. It's organized. It has intelligence. It's ready to dominate you. I'm not overreacting at all. I'm not embellishing this. Scripture talks about this all over the place. Paul wants us to know, know thy enemy. This will take great humility to own up to this. Like, they, Yeah, there's a part of me, the, the unredeemed fallen flesh that's still there, it never wants to please God. There's another part of me, the best part of me, the true part of me, the me redeemed by Jesus, he always wants to please God. He delights in the law of God. But whenever he seeks to do that, here comes that evil presence, that indwelling sin. And it organizes, and it strategizes, and it attacks. Paul says, you need wisdom to recognize this. Believers have a constant war going on inside of them. This is not just an academic treatment he's given here, just esoteric. This is just a, a doctrine that has no relevance. Man, this is one of the most relevant pieces of Scripture, I think, in the entire Bible. That's why so many people feel feel like this passage is just ex ex exposing their own heart. Like, yeah, yep, amen. I feel like I live in Romans 7. That's going on with me all the time. What do I do? That's what Romans 7 is, is really trying to do, drive us to help. And then Romans 8 fills us with hope, right? This is not just an academic exercise. Why do we look at things that we shouldn't? Why are we jealous so easily and envious and covetous? Why did that comment cut you so deeply and you can't, you can't unforget it? You can't forget about it or not think about it. Why can't you forgive people? Why do we hold grudges? Why do we overwork? Why do we overeat? Why do we overspend? Why do we drink too much? Why do we talk too much? Paul's trying to help us here. Why do I hold grudges? Why do I harbor resentment? 
Anybody believe the Bible's relevant? <laughs> Here's the most fundamental question. Why are my affections for God so cold at times? So cold. I know that I love God. I know he loves me. But I'm not making an effort to spend time in prayer. I feel so distant and apathetic toward his word. So easy to turn out pre tune out preaching. Or even get offended when I hear people talk about Jesus and I'm a Christian. Why is that? Paul's trying to help us here. Why do I get so tripped up? John Owen said this. Indwelling sin in believers is always ready to act. This troublesome, perplexing indweller will always hinder you. Man, he speaks language. It just helps me. This troublesome, perplexing indweller. This worst roommate ever, in other words, will always hinder you. Paul's telling us, rather than sin being something out there that you momentarily and occasionally feel from outside forces, sin dwells right here in, in our heart, right here. I remember when I got married way back in the day, uh, you know, there's that one year, just romantic honeymoon type, it's like nothing your spouse could say would make you angry, right, right? <laughs> I, seriously, the first year of our marriage, the greatest argument we got in was playing chess. My wife had never grew up playing chess, and I taught her how to play chess. And I was a jerk about it. I was beating her, and she, my wife's pretty intelligent, pretty, pretty, pretty crafty, pretty, pretty clever. And I was beating her, and I was making loud pterodactyl noises just to, <laughs> just to aggravate her. And she got mad, and my wife cussed at me. She did. She'll deny it. She cussed at me, and she threw the board upside down. And I was like, oh, my word, who is this? But, you know, we, we laughed about it. We laughed about it. But this is the thing that most prepared me for the eight, 18 years of marriage I've been in now. It was one year after we were married through the extreme generosity of some Christian friends that we knew, we were able to go to Hawaii. It was like a dream. I never thought this kid from Arkansas would get to go to Hawaii with my wife. No kids yet. It was just us. Uh, we were cheap. We didn't have the money to go, but, but somebody let us borrow their timeshare, and a close family friend gave us a buddy pass who worked at Delta. So we basically flew there for free, had free uh, lodging and accommodations. The only thing we had to spend money for was our food, and we did a lot of those sit down and listen to this two-hour talk and get a free voucher for $100, you know. So, man, we were, we were living high on the hog when we were there. And we drove all over that island. We, we got snorkeling gear. We wanted to snorkel. I'd always wanted to do that. We went to this crazy place called Kilakakua Bay. I don't know if I'm saying it right. It's on the Kona side of the big island where they make the coffee. And uh, there's this, it's called Snorkeler's Paradise. It's some of the most beautiful reefs it was back then. Uh, on the entire chain islands of Hawaii, and all the tourists wanted to go there. It was just breathtakingly beautiful. And, of course, we were cheap. Uh, the way that you could get over there was you would hire this pontoon-like party boat, and they would, they would drive you over. But Sarah and I were young. We were naive. We were, we were cheap. And we said, you know what? We don't need no stinking pontoon. We'll, we'll swim it. It doesn't look that far. <laughs> so we put on our snorkeling gear. We put on our fins, and off we swam. It took us an hour and a half. I'm not kidding. Now listen, we were younger, and we were in shape, better sh shape back then, and we thought we could do it, and I'm not kidding you guys. This is, I was telling, showing my father-in-law, now you can, this is before Google, but now you can, I Googled it and got a satellite image. It's like, I don't know how deep, it's just like a dark part. You know, Hawaii is the most remote part uh, of the world, uh, island-wise. It's out in the middle of nowhere in the Pacific Ocean. So off we go swimming, and we made the mistake of looking down with our goggles on in that open water. And, you know, they say barracudas only get up to five to six feet. No, that's, that's a lie. 
We saw seven, eight feet barracuda with razor sharp teeth. My wife swears she saw a giant squid. Um, there were things beneath us. There was, there was a mile of open water in front of us. There was currents that were keeping us from swimming. There were white cap waves that were pushing us over, I kid you not, into these sheer cliff edges that were razor sharp. It took us an hour and a half, and by the time we got there, we hated each other. My wife was all bloodied from the legs. Of, there, there, were some, uh, there were some foreigners that were on the other side, and we just swam up. We were crying. We were, I kid you not, we were bloody. We were crying. We were fighting, and they were like, where do you come from? And we said, there. And one of them was a girl. She said, you know come from there. And we're like, we came from there. She said, how you come from there? How you, how you go back? And we're like, we swim. She said, you know swim. You die. <laughs> we didn't talk to each other when we were there. We didn't really enjoy uh, snorkeler's paradise. And the sad story is we had to swim back because we were that cheap and brought no money with us. But the current was in our favor. Now listen, that taught me something on that day about marriage. What's the greatest threat to, to my marriage? Is it my wife? Her being selfish? Is it the world that's out there that's just pitted pit against us? Was it the barracudas and the giant squids? Was it the current? Was it the 80 or 90 or 100 feet deep water? Was it the razor sharp cliffs or the white cap waves? No. You know what it was? It was me. I was the problem. It was sin dwelling within me. That, that was kind of like a parable as to what it would take uh, to understand and live out marriage. It was like the, the greatest fight is not with my spouse. It's not with the devil, and it's not with the world. There are battles there to be fought, but the greatest, Paul's telling us here, friends, the greatest enemy you have is within you. And as, as John Owen said, we know so little about the enemy that we carry around with us in our bosom. Listen, this is 2022. We know things about everything. You can have ring technology. You can know if an insect crawls a, across your front porch or a raccoon passes gas. You get a, you get a notification on your app. In, in a, in a high-definition black-and-white video, oh, yeah, there's the neighbor knocking on the door. Don't answer it, you know? We have GPS. We know where everything is in the world and, and can, can pull up a high-definition satellite, how to get there. I can pull up most people on my contact list. If you don't know how to set your phone, I can tell where you're at. Pretty creepy, huh? We can know a lot of stuff. I can put on a Fitbit and know how many steps I took in a day, know what my heart rate is. Um, I can take a personality test and find out kind of Maybe if you believe in that, who I am, what I'm like, what are my tendencies. You can check your blood sugar. You can check your hair follicles and see if you're getting uh, poisoned by somebody. <laughs> but you know what, friends? The one code you'll never break is, is your heart. You know what the Bible says about your heart? This is humbling and sobering. But we got the Bible's the final authority, and this is what it says about your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can know it? We don't understand that. We think we can trust our... You ever hear that? I'll just follow your heart. Of course, it's going, if you want to go in a ditch, go ahead. Are you going to follow your heart when you're married and you're tempted to look at somebody else and you want to follow your heart? The heart want what, wants what it wants. It does, and sometimes you've got to kill it. Sometimes you've got to kill that want. That's what Paul's calling us to. That would be the last point. Warfare. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Check this out. Here's another verse. Hebrews chapter 3. Paul wants us to know what's going on inside of us, but he's not the only writer. He's not the only apostle. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, that's kind of an ongoing theological argument. Check this out. Take care, brothers. Who's he writing to? Unbelievers or believers? Believers. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Say that out loud. Evil, unbelieving heart. Have you ever felt like you had an evil, unbelieving heart? Well, I don't have an unbelieving heart. I'm a Christian. <clears throat> Hebrews 3. Don't, don't trust your thoughts. Check them with Scripture. An, un, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what do we do? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does sin want to do? It wants to deceive you and it wants to harden you. Oh my goodness, man. This is, we, could, we could talk about this the rest of the year and still not touch the bottom. Sin's organized. It has a strategy. It wants to deceive you, manipulate you, trick you, and harden you. Harden you where you're not even open. You're not even open to the, the, to the thought like, hey, you need to be careful. No, no, I got this. I don't want to dance on any dead men's grave or shame anybody that's fallen. I had a, a seminary graduate, a good friend of mine, who was in town last night. He said, can I come over? Brought his kids, had dinner together. We were on the back porch talking last night. This guy basically, he was so tremendously helped by Rabbi Zacharias. That's the reason he even went to seminary. He said, bro, I still can't wrap my mind around all these women that are coming forward and saying that he, he groomed them, he abused them, he tricked them, he deceived them. I don't, I don't need to go into gory details of that. You probably are in the know on that. He said, I just, I just don't get I don't understand it. He said, I researched it to try to understand. Like, who is this man? He like took that secret to his grave and it didn't even come out until later after he died that some of the women in the, in the salons uh, that he owned, the massage parlors, some of them came forward and said, we just feel like we needed to be honest. This is what's been going on. And it comes out that everybody that worked for, for Ravi Zacharias had a, had a line of cell phone that was connected to the network where there was accountability. And he refused to do that. He wouldn't do it. Why? Sin hardens you. You think, man, I'm above this. I don't need this. I got this. I got this. Sin deceives you. Some of those women said that he would tell them often when he was in the act with them, that, you know, you just, people don't understand the pressures of ministry. I just, I just need to relax, and, and I just need this. That's what sin does to us. It tricks us and manipulates us. Oh, I just need this. Sometimes we say that's what Satan says, and it is. Satan has that ally, an indwelling sin. But listen, we say that to ourselves. That's why people self-medicate sometimes. Oh, it's just been a rough day. I just need this. Your flesh wants that, right? I deserve this. That's what sin will do. Sin will say, you deserve this. You've worked so hard. You're so stressed out. Relax. Take a break. Do this thing or consume this thing. And then when you do, you know what sin will do? You're the worst Christian who's ever lived. I can't believe you did that. And then Satan comes in, the great accuser. The, the Avalos, the accuser, the, the condemner of the brethren. That's what sin does. It tricks you, it hardens you, it deceives you. And Paul wants us to know this. This is what John Owen said, I want to quote him again here. He said, many men and women live in the dark to themselves all their days. Whatever else they know, they know not themselves. They know their outward estates, how rich they are and the conditions of their bodies as to health and sickness this was written in the 1600s, man. It's like it was written yesterday. They are careful to examine all those things, but as to their inward man and their principles, as to God and eternity, they know very little or nothing of themselves. Indeed, few labor to grow wise in this matter. 
Few study themselves as they ought, or are acquainted with the evils of their own hearts as they ought, on which the whole course of their obedience and consequently of their eternal condition depends. We know things about the evil out there. That's how sin tricks us. I heard the story. <laughs> I heard the story the other day of a, of a mom at a swim meet who, whose daughter was in the swim meet and she, she couldn't find the towel. And she went to the coach and she said, what kind of outfit are you running here? What kind of heathens? What kind of juvenile delinquents are here? And he goes, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. What's going on? She said, somebody stole my daughter's towel. She said, I can't believe somebody would do that. And he said, well, just calm down. I'm sure it's a mistake. These things happen all the time. He said, tell me, what does the towel look like? And she said, it's white and it says Holiday Inn on it. <laughs> sin, sin is deceitful. It will trick you. It will deceive you. It will, it will turn you into a hypocrite. It will make you so angry. You know, the Bible says, be angry and sin not. I've come to the interpretation that primarily what that verse means is so long as you're being angry at your own sin, you're, you're, in, you're, in, you're in a good place. Because we tend to get outraged at the sin out there. And listen, there's times that, that calls for it. There's some of the things going on right now in culture that make me angry. And there are imprecatory psalms, and they're there for a reason, right? But here's Paul. Paul's talking about know yourself. Know your own hypocrisy. Know the, own, the deceitfulness and the depravity in your own heart. So that you can be watchful, so that you can wage warfare. This is what the Apostle Peter said, chapter 2, verse 11. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So Paul said it, Peter said it, James said it. Check this out. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He's writing to Christians. Scattered tribes, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where's the fight? Where's the battle? Let me at them. It's right here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Have you ever felt that? Another translation says, sin which ensnares us so easily. It feels like at times. So what do we do? We need watchfulness. This is kind of implied in this passage. Paul is calling us to be watchful. He discovered this principle. He found it. He was aware of it. No one is what, G.I. Joe says. Come on, man. Who grew up in the 80s and 90s? Knowing's half the battle. It is part of the battle. It's not the entire battle, but it's the most important part. Be watchful. Be watchful. Galatians 5, 17. I think I have that in here too. Share that with you a couple of weeks ago. This is like a summary of Romans 7 in one verse. It says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The Apostle Paul says, I find and I discover this principle whenever I seek to obey God. I just mentioned this in passing a couple of weeks ago. How many of you are with Paul? You find that, okay, I'm ready to serve God. I'm ready to get serious. Maybe after a rededication, maybe after a victory, maybe when God's shown you some things and you're ready to take these next steps and follow Jesus, sin gets organized, doesn't it? Sin gets strategic. 
Sin gets agitated and begins to hinder you and oppose you and attack you. And you see this all through Scripture, all through Scripture. You're reading through 2 Samuel and you read Paul was, or excuse me, David was at his apex of leadership, man. He's destroying the enemies of the Lord left and right. The Philistines are at bay. The Amalekites are at bay. He's taken some of these uh, world empires hostage. And then one day he's on his palace roof. Just probably, some commentators believe he wasn't up there trying to, to look at naked women bathing. Maybe he was up there writing a psalm, worshiping God, praying for all we know. He's at the apex of his leadership. Israel's like a world-dominant power. All the enemies are held at bay. He's seeking to serve Yahweh, and then bam, sin comes. Another story in the Old Testament is when Elijah had a tremendous victory over the, the prophets of Baal, and then his sin, sin attacked him. He began to, to become a coward and to flee from Jezebel. The apostle Peter was sent to Follow after some of the churches that Paul had planted. He got sent to Antioch. And he sludged right back into legalism. Remember, he wasn't walking in step with the gospel. He was playing the hypocrite and even captured Barnabas in his hypocrisy. And the apostle Paul had to confront him to his face. Just for all the people to say, well, you know, some of these things are Old Testament. It was before we had this or that. This story was in the New Testament. After the Spirit had, had came. And this is Peter getting, getting tripped up. What was it, man? It was fear of man. It was sin. John Owen clarifies. He says, it is this way in believers. This principle, this law of indwelling sin, it is a law in them, even though it's not a law to them. We're not under the dominion of sin any longer. Remember, we talked about that. Romans chapter 6. But there are times we place ourselves back under sin's bondage. We place ourselves back under its jurisdiction. Willingly, we do that. It deceives us. It tricks us. We forget who we are in Christ. We're ignorant of the powers that we've been given as Christians. He says, Though its rule be broken, its strength weakened and impaired, its root mortified, yet it is a law still of great force and efficacy. There where it is least felt, it is the most powerful. That got me. Where it is the least felt, it is the most powerful. That's why David says in Psalm 139, he says this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Now, you know, that's an amazing psalm to pray. You know, pray back God's words to him. David is not praying for God, per se, to see what's in his heart and know it. Who's he praying for? Himself. Lord, search my heart. Show me what's in there. Help me to be watchful. Help me to be vigilant. In the Old Testament... In all these wars you have, there, there would be a fortress, a citadel, and there would be a watchman posted on the top looking out at the enemy. Are they camping? They're camping. Their campfires are out. Everything's silent. You can rest. Be watchful. Know when your most vulnerable time is. God has had to show me that in church planning. We can have a tremendous Sunday, man. The worship's amazing. Get good feedback on the message. Feel like God loosened my tongue. We have a good, a good crowd turns up. And man, that week, <laughs> it's like, it's like sin, sin goes haywire on me, pride, and then doubt, and it's just crazy. Man, I just know that. And now that I, I know that about myself, I can be watchful. I can be prayerful. And you can too. John Flavel, the Puritan, he said, it is the watchful heart that discovers and suppresses the temptation before it comes to full strength. 
This is a, I wrote this question in here. I can't remember why, but people have asked me before, can Satan possess us? Have you ever wondered that? And now I'm a Christian. I know the devil's real. I know Satan is on the prowl. If I'm a believer, I belong to Christ. I've been redeemed and purchased by him. Can I be possessed by Satan? And the answer is unequivocally no. You cannot be possessed by Satan who is a fallen angel and who is a, a spirit because that implies ownership. Possession means ownership. So Satan cannot possess you. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. Amen? He possesses you. You're his. He, you belong to him. But Satan can't harass you. He can oppress you. He can hinder you. He can attack you. But the greater reality that the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans 7 is your indwelling sin. He is, that sin is inside of you and does want to possess you even though he's been dethroned and he no longer holds dominion. He's not dead. You died, the old you died, but sin wants to crawl back on the throne. And the Apostle Paul is telling you about that struggle. The minute you take your eyes off of him, he's going for the throne, man. He's like a toddler that you take the toys away from, right? And then you turn your head or go pour a cup of coffee, mom. What happens? You turn around and toddler's got that toy again or got that thing, that dangerous thing. Number three, this is the last point, and we'll get through this here, is we need warfare. All throughout this passage, especially in verse 21, he says, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's calling here for warfare. Now listen, this is just a, tra- this is just a trailer. Paul is just getting on the, he's on the out, outside skirmishes of what he really wants to say about this a little bit later in chapter 8. So this is preview of coming attractions. This is like a little trailer just to tease you a little bit. He's like, this is warfare. You've got sin. It's organized. It's strategic. It's deceitful. It wants to harden you, enslave you, exercise dominion over you. You better know that you're at war. So he's calling for wisdom. He's calling for watchfulness. And he's calling for war. You need to make war. You are not at peace. Do you know one of the analogies and the imagery that the New Testament uses to describe Christians? You know what it is? You know what you are, Christian? You are a soldier. You're a soldier. What do soldiers do? They fight. Soldiers fight. They're in battle at all times. They've got their armor on. They sleep with one eye open. They are aware of the presence of the enemy. They know the enemy. They've studied the enemy. They've been trained in warfare. They've got weapons. You're a soldier. You're also a farmer. You're an athlete. All those analogies are used to imply action, preparation, knowledge, skill, lifestyle. The Apostle Paul in another place, 1 Corinthians 9, the latter part of that chapter, he says, I beat my body. <laughs> he, he uses the Olympics, the Isthmian Games in, in, in the Greek world, which would have been the next, next biggest thing to the Olympic Games. He says, I, I'm like a, a shadow boxer. But I, I'm not boxing shadows. I know what I'm fighting. I beat my body into submission so that I'm not disqualified. I'm running the race so that I can win. There's work to be done. There's a battle to be fought. Ephesians 5 says, walk carefully. It's one thing to be in a battle. It's another thing to be ignorant that you're in a battle. Can you imagine that, man? If you're walking through a city and there's snipers in there and, the, and, and 
Your head is in their crosshairs and you have no knowledge of it. That's, that's kind of the primer for when John Owen wrote his book. He was so concerned that people, they don't have wisdom, they don't have watchfulness, they're not even fighting. It's like they don't even have their armor on. They don't even have a weapon in their hand. They're just strolling around, ambling aimlessly through the city like a tourist, wandering carelessly through the fields as if there were no landmines. You've seen those movies, man, where somebody steps on like a bouncing Betty and they suppress it down, and if you, if you, if you back your foot off, supposedly those blow up in the air and throw shrapnel metal all through your body. I've always just wondered, just because my personality, that would wreck me, man. That would wreck me. And they're like, now this, this, is, an aban- this is an old abandoned line, uh, uh, field full of landmines. We think we've gotten most of them out, but the enemy's on the other side. Let's go. Let's assault them. Oh, that would wreck me, man. Like walking through there knowing that there's landmines. <laughs> and it's kind of a picture, not that we want to be wrecked. We have courage. We have faith. We're fearless. But we're also no we're at war, man. And the enemy, there's no Geneva code for, the, for, for indwelling sin, friends. He, he is out to kill you. That's what he wants. That's what sin seeks to do. The real battle, the true battle, the battle that God has called you and I to fight at all times is not out there. It's in here. Romans 6 was written so that we would know that the war has been won for us by Jesus. We're going to come out of this thing as victors. Praise God for that. Romans 7 was written to sober us. Romans 7 was written to remind us that we have to engage in the battle. The war has been won, but we got we to gotta engage in the battle. We can't dodge the draft here. It was written to drive us to help. And Romans 8 was written to fill us with hope. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says at the end of Romans chapter 15. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That's what Paul's aiming at. He's not doing this to scare us. He wants us to be filled with hope. But I, I, I truly believe the last part of this chapter, verses 24 and 25, let me read them. I believe that if you've been a Christian for very long and you haven't felt like you've been brought to a place where you can kind of echo Paul's prayers, I feel like there's going to be a, a, a really humbling and sobering time for you when you will. And God wants you to be open to that. This is what he says. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's only two kinds of prayer in the Bible. Thank you and help. And both of them have been put side by side right here. Paul says, help. And then he says, thank you. You've delivered me. It almost sounds uh, like a conundrum here. But they're both there. That's kind of the Christian experience. He's preparing us for what he's going to say about the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. But he wants us to be right there where he's at at the end of chapter 7. Who will deliver me? You know, I've read, and, and Paul's writing to the Romans, uh, who are obviously living in Rome. And at some point, that ancient civilization had this strange uh, penal uh, code that if you murdered somebody, if you were guilty of crimes against humanity, do you know what they would do? They would actually strap the body of the victim that you murdered to your body. Now, you, you're aware of all the diseases that a corpse carries. That's why there are all these laws about unclean, don't touch it, wash your hands, get away. Uh, but even beyond that, all the diseases that a dead corpse would carry, can you imagine? That'd be the worst punishment imaginable. You kill somebody, fine, strap that corpse on them. When does it come off? Oh, it doesn't, ever. That was your punishment. You carry that corpse around until you catch the disease and you succumb to consumption or whatever. 
I don't know, some people have argued, no, that's just, that's not real. I don't know, but if, if that's what Paul has in mind, what a vivid, what a vivid picture. He's saying, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't get rid of it. There's nothing I can do. And I think this too, friends, I believe, you know, when we talk about salvation, we've been redeemed, we've been saved, and people say, saved from what? Well, saved from three things. Think of it this way. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. Amen? You've been justified. You've been declared blameless. Jesus took your place. He was your substitute. And now you're, you're, you're innocent. And more than that, you're righteous. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. You've also, you, listen, you've also been saved from the power of sin, right? Jesus broke the power of sin over you. It no longer has dominion. You're no longer under its authority, under its jurisdiction. You don't have to obey it. Praise God for that. You're being saved from that. One day, you will be saved from the what? From the presence of sin. You're not saved from that yet. Sin dwells within you. You've been given the power. You've been given the authority. You've been given the tools and the weapons you need to hold it at bay, to kill it, to mortify it, to combat it. But until the day you die or the, till, the day Jesus returns, indwelling sin is going to hinder you and oppose you and resist you. The only thing you can do to get rid of that is have Jesus return. And when he returns, he doesn't want to find us taking our ease in Zion, right? He wants to, it's more like a chopper rescue. <laughs> there's a war going on and there's sirens going off and there's the, the remains of, of slaughtered sin is laying about you and he rescues you out of that. And close with a, oh man, we're, we're at 47 minutes. I was going <laughs> to, you guys are so patient with me every week. You know, I believe so powerfully about this. That's why I don't preach 20-minute sermons. There's just too much here to cover in 20 minutes. I read the classic book, uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, last week. Uh, it's not that long. It's like 50 pages. And the, turns out the guy that wrote that, Stevenson, was a believer. And I'm pretty sure he took some of his ideas from Romans 7. You know the story. There's a kind, intelligent, respectable citizen in London named Dr. Jekyll. And he's a chemist. And he, he's, he, he sees that man is not one, but two. He finds within him this presence. The, there's this evil. And he wants to separate himself from it so that it can give full expression and he can send it away and conquer it, right? And so he comes up with this potion. There's been like 50 movies made about this. My first introduction was Alvin and the Chipmunks had a cartoon about it. it scared me to death. I had nightmares for years about that. Anyway, he comes up with this chemical and he drinks it, and then he turns into Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde is ugly, he's loathsome, he's corrupt, he's vile. And he thought that when Mr. Hyde uh, separated, he could control him. But it turns out Mr. Hyde is ten times more wicked than Dr. Jekyll ever thought he was. And the story has a tragic ending. Uh, he separates Dr. Jekyll from Mr. Hyde, and eventually Mr. Hyde grows and grows and grows in his strength, and he eventually takes over, and he kills Dr. Jekyll, and they both die from suicide. It's crazy terrible, tragic story. But as I think about that, you, 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 can, you can almost sympathize with what the author was trying to say. He wants to rid himself of this presence entirely. He wants it to go away. And so he, he, he mixed up this potion, this concoction. But that's, that's not how God's going to deliver us. Look, look at what he says here. Look at the very end of this. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's our victory. We don't look within for victory. We look in for the war we look out for victory. Jesus Christ is going to fully and finally deliver us. 
Man, that is the best news in the world. And sometimes we don't take the message of the gospel all the way to its conclusion. He's going to deliver us from the presence of sin once and for all, all together. In heaven, for all eternity, there will be no more Romans 7. It'll be done. I don't think we'll be ripping pages out of our Bible. If we do, Romans 7 will be the one we rip out and say, we don't need that anymore. Praise God, we won't need that anymore. Now we need it. We need it. And listen, this is, this is build up. This is a shameless plug for next week. You especially need Romans 8. You know the only way out of Romans 7? What's the only way out of Romans 7? Romans 8. Romans 8, it starts out with this grand declaration. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You slipped up. You messed up. Sin tricked you. It enslaved you again. Well, guess what? Praise God because of the finished work of Jesus. There's no condemnation. You're still innocent. You're still declared blameless. You still belong to him. God has not changed his mind about you. Praise God for that. But now there's new equipment you need to be aware of. And Paul's going to go on this entire expose of a better roommate. That's never going to go away. Praise God. The Holy Spirit's never. You can't get rid of the Holy Spirit. And you wouldn't want to if you knew what he's up to. So we're going to talk about that next week. But for now, let's prepare our hearts for communion. What did it cost Jesus to secure this victory that we just talked about? Thanks be to God who's given me victory. What did it take? That's what we commemorate every time we have communion. Every time we gather around the Lord's table. So let's pray and I'll ask the servers to, to prepare to come down and serve the elements. If you have children who are in the back who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, and they want to join you uh, as, as, as a family to partake communion, you can make your way back there. The teachers will be waiting on you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. We want to be wise about the sin that dwells within us. We want to be watchful and understand more about the, the times we're more weak and vulnerable, the times we need a special help to wear our armor, sleep with one eye open. We want to be engaged in warfare at all times, Lord. But, but even more than all of that, we want to know, Lord, that you have sent us a helper. You, you promised us the Holy Spirit. You would not leave us as orphans. You would not leave us helpless. You would not leave us hopeless. You would give us uh, the very essence of who you are. You would send a member of the Trinity to dwell within us, to empower us, to liberate us, to free us, to teach us, to help us, Lord. Thank you for his presence. Thank you for his help. Open our our eyes and our hearts as we jump into Romans 8 next time and uh, start our series on the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. There's so much there to learn, and I feel like a a complete beginner. I feel like a child, Lord. We need all, all of your help together as a church family. Help us to just cherish this promise, Lord, and not be fearful of it. I know when we talk about the Holy Spirit, people get... Uh, afraid and people get the heebie-jeebies maybe they sat under strange teaching on that or maybe they've sat under no teaching at all or just wrong teaching I pray that you would open our hearts Lord uh, so that the enemy wouldn't deceive us into not fully understanding who you are for us and what you've done inside of us prepare our hearts now to receive communion we pray these things in Jesus name amen all right Uh, just a couple of uh, just housekeeping stuff before we get started here. Hate to kill, hate to kill the moment here. 
but we, we have brand new com communion elements here, okay? This is new. This is really important, okay? There's a top and there's a bottom. One of these, you peel off the, the lid and it's a, it's a wafer. It's a cracker. The other one, you peel off the lid and it's, it's dark, uh, dark purple grape juice. Make sure you peel the cracker off first and then turn this thing over. And then you peel the top, and it's the grape juice, okay? We're going we're gonna to do that together. The servers here are going to administer the elements. You can hang on to those, and we'll do this together, but do it in the right order, okay? You guys can go ahead and, and, and serve. I just want to remind you that communion is for believers. It's in believers who are trusting in the finished work of Jesus right now, today, in this moment. Uh, if I were to ask you, if you're trusting in Christ alone to save you from your sin, then I invite you to partake of communion with us. This is a serious event. It's a sobering event because it reminds us that our sin is so terrible that Jesus had to die for us. It's the only thing that could be done. God had to come and become a man and, and die in our place. Sin is that serious. But God loves us. He loves us so truly and so powerfully. He was glad to do that. So this is a wonderful time for you to meditate on the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Are you trusting in that? This is not a time to be thinking, have I been good enough? Am I worthy enough to take this? Let me, let me shorten your search. You're not. You're not worthy enough to take this, but He is. And that's what we celebrate. We are celebrating His broken body, His shed blood. We're not celebrating it today, our, our effort, our work. We're not celebrating the good time and devotion we had that's gonna make us okay with God. We're not trusting in any of that today. What did it take? It took Jesus coming, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death in our place, and suffering a victorious resurrection because Jesus was accepted as the spotless Lamb of God by His Father. Those are the things we, we meditate on, that we are, because of that, we're more than conquerors in Christ. Amen? Because of what Jesus did, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I love chapter 8 because it starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And all the good stuff in between there. We're going to dig down and, and scuba dive and snorkel and see the, see, see the beautiful reef, all right? So let me read to you Paul's instructions. 1 Corinthians, this is what he said. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is what we're all doing. Wafer up, okay? This is what we're all doing today. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We need to proclaim that as often as we do this in remembrance of him and thanksgiving for what he did. Listen, here's, here's the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. If you want to classify Christianity as religion. Every other religion in the world says do. Christianity says done. Jesus' dying words on the cross were what? Try harder, do better. No. 
No, earn this. No, that's not what he said. He said, it's finished. It's finished. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed us white as snow. So let's take this bread together, okay? You can put that in your hand there. And it says, the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body which was broken for you. Let's do it together. It says the same way he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is the covenant of my blood which was shed for you. Let's drink it together. And then he prayed, Lord Jesus, we thank you today. We celebrate your finished work. We celebrate that horrific sight that we see in our mind's eyes. We read the scriptures on Calvary. You hung there naked and bloody. You were held up in scorn and derision and contempt. People mocked you and, and beat you and persecuted you. And, and your word says, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross and you despised the shame. Thank you so much for doing that. But Lord, much, much deeper than, than what we see on the outside, the pain, the agony, the humiliation of crucifixion was the, the wrath of God that you absorbed on our behalf. You heard uh, your father's displeasure and you bore and absorbed all of his righteous judgment and anger. And you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Thank you for enduring that, Lord. Thank you for enduring that on our behalf. We celebrate that today. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You guys may take your seat. Um, the Bible says that after that night when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, that they sang a hymn together. And so one of the traditions we come to cherish here and relish is that we sing a hymn together. So, uh, Vitaly, you got a hymn for us today, brother? We're going to stand to our feet and sing a hymn. And, and before, before we do, I want to do something I should have done with that last point. I never give you guys homework. Uh, here's your homework. <laughs> here's your homework. This, this week, I want you to pray about something. We have taken a break from community group. We follow the patterns and the rhythms. We've learned that. It's taken us seven years to learn that all, even singles and families together, they, they, they walk through these patterns and seasons together. And it's summertime. School's out. Community groups need a break. The hosts need a break. But we've also seen that people still want to get together. They still want to grow. So we are offering this summer, and Matt's going to tell you more about it in a minute. Not trying to steal your thunder here, brother. Uh, we're offering gr a grow class. This class is how do you cultivate spiritually healthy habits? How do you grow deeper in the things of God? How do you get conformed to the image of Jesus? How do you do that together as a church family? So Matt is going to be the primary, maybe the only, but you're the primary teacher for sure of that class. And we're going to take it be every week this summer. He'll tell you more about it in a minute. But, but we're going to go through the spiritual disciplines. And I want, I should have made that an application in we need wisdom, we need watchfulness, we need warfare, and part of that is I think this class can really help equip you for that. So if you have wanted to grow in your understanding of, of, of who God is, who you are, why you struggle the way you do, what to do about it, and why we're better together, pay attention to this announcement. It's the first class is starting this week, and uh, you can find out all you need to know about that, and you can even offer to host one of these classes. Matt will tell you more about that. So I want to leave you with that. That's my final word for the morning. 
before we sing this hymn together and before we get sent out. Thank you. Oh. 
Thank you, Vitaly and the worship team. And thank you, Tommy, for that message. Yeah, sorry, y'all can grab a quick seat. We'll just have a couple of announcements. What a fitting song after that sermon. Um, I've been reflecting on, I think it's Galatians 6 something. I don't know the verse. Uh, but it says, far be it for me to boast in anything except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Um, and that passage is definitely humbling, as Tommy said we have no reason to boast in and of ourselves. It's all in Jesus and in his cross. Um, before we go, a couple of announcements. The first slide you see up there, this is the first Sunday of the month. And each first Sunday, we collect supplies for Deltona High School for their families who are considered in transition without a place to call their own right now, to call their own home. Um, so if you have those with you, there's a place in the lobby to drop those off. And if you forgot, like I always say, you can always swing by the Grace Life offices. We're there Tuesday through Friday, and you can drop off the donations there. Uh, we just love to partner with this school in, in that way. And the, uh, the lady who leads that ministry here is, she's always just overwhelmed and blessed by the donations that you guys give. So thank you. Um, also tonight, our Grace Life student ministry is gathering from 6 to 8 p.m., We'll have some food, a time of Bible study in the book of Psalms, and a fun time hanging out. That will be at Melanie Reyes's house. If you need that address, you can see me after the service, or you can go on the Church Center app and see it on there. That is tonight, 6 to 8. And also this month, the third Sunday, is when we usually have our next student ministry gathering, but that's Father's Day. So we're going to push that back to June 26, just as a heads up there. Next, like Tommy said, our GROW class is starting this week, Thursday, June 9th. It'll be from 6.30 to 8. I'm incredibly excited. I think it's going to be amazing. It'll be discussion-based. We'll talk through all kinds of practical, daily ways we can mortify sin, keep fighting the battle, and keep enjoying the presence of God, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Um, so please join us. It'll be seven classes. We're going to take a break around July 4th for that holiday week. And look, if you're traveling, if you're going to miss one or two, don't let that stop you from coming to the other five or six. Um, I can give you the notes that we talk about if you miss a week. I know people are traveling in the summer. Um, we have a place on the app if you scan that QR code to register. That way you'll get an email with all the details of where we're meeting and, and all that stuff. So that starts this week this Thursday. And then last announcement, we have our baby bottle outreach that we do to support the pregnancy center. 
and we give. Uh, you can fill up a baby bottle with a donation, um, change, a check, whatever, and we are giving until Father's Day coming up in a couple of weeks, and you can see the table out in the lobby that the Drakes put together, um, and to get more details about that. And lastly, the cups for communion, if you could just carry those with you, there's some baskets in the back. Um, Christy and Steve have those back there. We just want to leave this place clean uh, for the high school. And I believe that's it. And then we can stand and rise and we will read our, um, our send-off, our charge for this week. So read this aloud with me. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.